Thank you, Alex. It's good uh, to be uh, introduced by your favourite nephew. Uh, he, he is my only one, but he, he's, a, he's a good guy. Um, I want you to turn to uh, Psalm 33. Uh, that's our psalm for this evening. Uh, our title is God Overall, and you'll find it in page 463 in the Pew Bibles. Psalm 33. This psalm is a hymn of praise, a hymn that focuses on the God who is overall. I want you to imagine a large number of the Israelites gathering together to sing this psalm. Think of how they would have been impacted by the truths in the psalm and how the, the words would have reverberated in their minds in the days that followed. Singing has always been a fantastic way for us to learn biblical truth and it enables us to respond to God in worship. So we want to look at this psalm and break it down into a number of sections. At the start, verses 1 to 3 are a call to praise. And then the main section from verses 4 through to 19 uh, give us a number of reasons why we worship God. And then in the final verses, we will see our response uh, to our, that call to praise. Let's just take a moment uh, to pray before we, we start to read the psalm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the book of the Psalms. We thank you uh, for these words that, uh, that delve right into the heart of man and the difficulties uh, that we all experience and the moments of uh, high moments and the lows in life. Lord, we thank you uh, that through these Psalms we can learn uh, to worship you more and we can find answers uh, to the various questions that we have. Help us this evening as we look at this to uh, grasp more of your love for us and more of your character, and that we would worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read uh, the first little section from verses uh, 1 uh, to 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. The psalm begins with an enthusiastic call to worship. Verses 1 to 3 are full of joy, giving thanks, melody, singing. They, they name various instruments uh, that should be used, and there are even loud shouts. All of these are to be focused uh, on the Lord. And I'm sure the people who are being called to worship are coming from a wide variety of emotions and experiences. Some may be discouraged, others suffering, some confused, brokenhearted, but others may be at a better point in life's journey. But all of them, no matter what stage of life they're at, are called to come together before the Lord and to worship him with joy. But how is it possible for them to worship? How is it possible to, for them to worship uh, with joy? This series is entitled Psalms of Resilience. I wonder if you've ever been to a talk about resilience. Maybe you, don't, you haven't even thought about what resilience is. Well, I looked online and a number of definitions came up. This was the first one. Resilience means being able to adapt to life's misfortunes and setbacks. Another definition was resilience refers to how well you can deal with and bounce back from the difficulties of life. It can mean the difference between handling pressure and losing your cool. 
the ability to maintain personal and professional well-being in the face of ongoing stress and adversity. Look at the the key words that are in the definition. Adapt, deal with, bounce back, handle pressure, and maintain your well-being. This is what um, resilient people look like. These are the qualities that, that they show. They see challenges. They commit to goals. They focus on what they can control. Think positively. Are empathetic. And they don't blame themselves. What some people call self-compassion. And through work, I've had uh, a number of uh, occasions to go to co- courses which included this type of resilience teaching. Some of it was very useful. And I find it helpful for various challenges that we face. So I'm not knocking it. And it's, especially in today's age, mental well-being and our ability uh, to be resilient is so important. But I'm a little bit cautious because a lot of the techniques that are used in resilience training all center on ourselves. They center on how we can be better, how we can uh, be a better person. I've even come across a book that was entitled How to Be a Better You. So I'm a little bit reserved about some of the resilience teaching. So here we have the people of Israel coming together to worship with all their struggles and with all their different experiences. And they're called to be joyful and, and to worship God. Are they called to be joyful by simply thinking positively, having self-compassion and bouncing back from their problems? Thankfully, they're not. The beauty of this psalm is that it gives us reasons to worship God. Reasons that aren't about us. They are about God. And our view of God is often deficient. But let's pray that through these verses, that our hearts will be stirred and our minds will delight in the character of God. So let's turn back uh, to the psalm and read uh, verses 4 through to 9. And this is the first reason um, that I, I think that we are called to worship God, the righteous and faithful character of God. Verse 4, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap, He puts the deeps deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Look at the fundamental attributes of God's character that are listed in verses 4 and 5. What God has spoken and commanded is upright all his work is done in faithfulness. His love, his, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love. Upright, faithful, righteous, just, steadfast love. These are the attributes of God and what a God we worship. Many of us uh, will remember submitting a job application or preparing uh, for an interview. And you came to that dreaded section where you had to write the personal profile. The moment when you had to sell yourself, when you had to use buzzwords and talk about all your attributes. We, we have to become spin doctors in that moment, making ourselves look 
and sound the best that we can. But the attributes of God, God's character, are nothing like that. They are evidenced through history. In verses 6 to 9, they take, it takes us back right to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Verse 6, God spoke and the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. The God we worship is the same God who made everything by speaking and commanding it to be. Even though the world, even though the world God created has been damaged by sin, he has not changed. Our response should be to stand in awe of him and worship him. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, we read that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal, omnipotent, holy son of God took on flesh and became a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and he revealed the fullness of God to us. Jesus expresses God's righteousness his justice, his faithfulness, and his steadfast love. And through the cross, he provides the way for us to receive forgiveness for sin and acceptance as God's children. Children who are able to stand before the righteous, just, and loving God, not through anything we have achieved or because of our best characteristics, but on the basis of Christ's sacrifice in our place. One of the songs that we've been learning recently has a series of questions which are repeated, uh, repeatedly answered by the phrase, only a holy God. Here are some of the questions. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a holy God. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. And then it makes it personal. Only my holy God. Come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. So we've seen our first reason uh, to come and joyfully worship God. And that is the, the righteous and faithful character of God. Because we can lift our eyes off ourselves and focus on him who is righteous and faithful. Our second reason uh, this evening is in verses 10 to 12. God's will prevails. Let's read these. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. If we were back at school doing an English exam on this text, I'm sure one of the questions uh, would be compare and contrast verses 10 and 11. I always hated that type of question. But even I can see the contrast between verses 10 and 11. On the one hand, we have the counsel of the nations that are brought to nothing by God. On the other, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. And similarly, the plans of the peoples are frustrated, while the plans of God's heart are, for, are to all generations. The God who made the world also rules it according, according to his own purposes. The upright, faithful, righteous, just and loving God, 
who we read about in the earlier verses, stands firm in his purposes despite the opposing plans of the nations. Recently, I was listening to some friends who are not sure what the future holds. There are lots of potential risks for them ahead. And humanly speaking, you might just want to run away. But as they look back on God's faithfulness and God's hand over past years, they are confident that God will not abandon them in the future. The words they used really stuck with me. They said, God's purpose will prevail, whatever that means. This was not some sort of wishful thinking. It was grounded on the promises of God and on their own experience of the Lord in the past. Sometimes God's purposes are tough to get our heads around. Why has he led me down uh, this direction? Would it have not been better to go in a different way? Why is this happening to me? But it is good to remind ourselves that his plans are enduring and unshakable. There is so much fake news and and distraction in this world, but through history, God has proved his faithfulness, his patience, and his love to his people. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. This verse takes us right back to Genesis again, to God's promise to Abraham that he will make Abraham the father of many nations, and that God would be their God, and that they would be his people. A promise that is repeated many times throughout the Old Testament. As the people sang, verse 12, their minds would have gone back in history to when the family of Jacob ended up in Egypt and were protected through the famine and even while they were slaves. They remembered how God freed them from slavery and brought them out of Egypt under the care of Moses and eventually brought them into the promised land. But even as God fulfilled his promise to be with his people and be their God, we witness the people ignoring God and trying their own way. Think of Abraham and Sarah, how they tried to resolve the problem that they had no son, and they tried by their own means. Or think of the people of Israel who came down, uh, who while Moses was up in, in, in Mount Sinai, they created their own God out of gold and they worshipped it. Time and time again, the people of God were blessed and then they turn away from him who was the source of their blessing. But time and time again, God in his mercy accepted them back. I'm sure we can all look back and see the same pattern in our lives. Moments when God has clearly directed and blessed us. The moment we were saved. Times when we made big choices in life. And that all comes alongside recurring episodes when we failed, but God forgave us and showed us his mercy. We are thankful that the purposes of God are perfect and his will prevails, that he is faithful even when we aren't. So our reasons to worship are the righteous and faithful character of God, and secondly, that God's will prevails. And the final, the third and final uh, reason that we see in this section um, is in verses 13 through to 19. And it is that God sees. So let's read these verses. Verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. 
From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Look at the words in these verses. God um, God sees. Look at, look at the different ways he sees. God looks down. He sees. God looks out. And he observes. God uses his heavenly vantage point to scrutinize the hearts and the actions of humans. God is aware of what is going on and what is found in the heart of man, the good and the bad. Pause for a minute and consider God's majesty. He is in heaven. He is enthroned. He has fashioned the hearts of us all. The prophet Isaiah compares God's greatness to ourselves and likens us to grasshoppers. This is what he says in Isaiah 40, 22 and 23. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and brings them out brings them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. But rather than submit to God as our Lord and King, the world seeks power and success through military might, world domination, politics, and human invention. Verses 16 to 17, look what happens. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by great strength. The warhorse is a false hope and does not rescue. Israel could again go back and remember the exodus from Egypt and the futile attempt of Pharaoh to keep them captive with all his military power. The king was not saved by his great army. The warhorse was a false hope. God brought victory to Israel. But the nation of Israel had many disastrous kings themselves. And their history is littered with lost battles in which they outnumbered their enemies. They lost because they trusted in their own resources and not in Almighty God. Sometimes God may seem rather distant to us. And we may view our lives as being insignificant or even pointless at times. But verses 18 and 19 take the gaze of the observing God who is enthroned in heaven And they bring that down to the personal level. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. For those who don't rely upon themselves, but turn to God and place their trust in him, there is hope because God's eye is on them and he desires to deliver their soul from death. Jesus has defeated death. He died on the cross. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. He will rescue anyone who turns to him, anyone who asks to be forgiven for their sin and accepts Jesus as their Lord and King. He will deliver us from death and disaster. 
The Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias often uses a quote to, to describe the frailty of the nations and empires, and particularly those of the 20th century. And I want to just use that quote now. He says, We look back upon history. What do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and wealth dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. An Italian clown announced that he would restart the calendar to begin his own ascension to power. I've heard a murderous Georgian in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elect of the world as someone wiser than Solomon. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that had the American people so wanted, they could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by fears of running out of those precious fuels that keep her motorways roaring and the smog settling. All in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. In contrast to the horror of these self-styled supermen, there stands the gigantic figure of one person, because of whom, by whom and in whom and through him alone, mankind might still have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. The more I look at the failed saviors of men, the more beautiful the Son of God looks to me. So why do we come to worship? We come to worship because our eyes are refocused on the righteous and faithful character of God. Because the purposes of our God are perfect and his will prevails. Because the God who, who sees as he observes from heaven also draws close to those who fear and put their hope in him. He will deliver them from death and disaster. All of these reasons are sung and taken to heart. And the people respond in, to the earlier call of, to praise and worship in the final verses, verses 20 to 22. Let's read them. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. It struck me in that these final verses seem to reverse or step back through the reasons for worship that we have looked at, reasons one, uh, two, and three. So, if you can sort of bear with me here. Reason three is reinforced in verse 20. God is our help and shield. It's not the power and might of the earthly kings and armies. We step back to reason two in verse 21. We trust in God and our hearts are glad because he is holy and sovereign and his purposes and plans prevail. And then another step back in the last verse 
to reason one. The character of God, in particular his steadfast love, is the reason for our hope. Tonight God is calling each of us to worship him. Perhaps uh, you haven't appreciated God's steadfast love for you, which he demonstrated so deeply by sending his son into the world to die, so that if you believe in him, you can have everlasting life and true hope for the future. It would be amazing tonight if you would respond to God's call and worship him for the first time this evening. As Christians, there will be times when we will respond enthusiastically to this call to worship. At other times, we will need to be reminded of God's faithful character, of his eternal plans, and be reminded that he is watching over us. Sometimes we may be be called to wait on him. Waiting is usually tough. But if we do wait, it will be a sign of our surrender to the power of God, rather than trusting in human strength and power. Despite suffering, struggle and pain, God remains worthy of our trust and is the only reliable source of hope. Words of another hymn that we will sing later. There is a hope that stands the test of time that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave to see the matchless beauty of a day divine when I behold his face. When sufferings cease and sorrows die and every longing satisfied, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul for I am truly whole.